0: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Mary Catherine Carmichael, along with my co-host for today, Kyle Stokes. Thanks for joining us, Kyle. Good to be with you. Kyle's filling in for Bob Salzberg, who is off. Today, we're talking about decision fatigue. This may or may not be a term you're familiar with. We make thousands of choices each day, what to wear, what to eat, where to park. But some research shows making too many decisions can be exhausting and might even lead to bad choices. A study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found judges were more likely to make favorable rulings in similar cases early on in the day or if they took a break to eat a sandwich first. Today, we're taking a closer look at decision making. We'll be talking with a Monroe County judge and experts who study decision making to see if the choices you make might be slowing you down. We hope you'll join the conversation as well. You can call us at 855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-WFIU. That's 9348. You can also join us, uh, the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition and send in your questions that way or send us a tweet at noon edition. Now, let me introduce our guests. We're joined by the Honorable Mary Ellen Dekoff, who is a judge from Monroe County Circuit Court, Division 5, Dr. Ed Hurt, Professor, Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences, Indiana University. And by Dr. Peter Todd, Professor, Department of Physiological and Brain Sciences, Indiana University. Welcome everybody. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Glad thank you. you
0: decided to come. <laughs> you know, I had to laugh um, when we was I was coming in today because I was doing some online shopping and I had a bunch of stuff in my cart, and I just at one point I was just overwhelmed and I walked away. I didn't even buy it. So I didn't buy anything. So, you know, I, I think this is a, a very germane topic for this time of year. So thank you all for being here um, are our brains constructed to handle all the decisions required to live in the 21st century
1: I think <laughs> that we have to deal with what we have in front of us so I mean I think that the, it is difficult for many of us to make these kind of decisions and so if you accumulate them over time I think that there is a the experience that they talk about in this paper of, of depletion is something that I think many of us can resonate to that we just feel overwhelmed as you said and um it can have some consequences for things down the line if we have to do this repetitively or over some period of time.
0: Let's talk about the study a little bit and and some of the findings of the study. Who wants to give us kind of an overview of that?
1: Um, I think this study was in the spirit of kind of looking at the consequences of uh, of judgments that people have to make over time. It was specifically in the context of legal decision making. So our judge is certainly relevant and can understand more for us exactly what the kind of decisions that these um, these individuals had to make. But the idea was that you know, if you have to do things over a long window of time, um, you know, if, if it is the experience that making difficult kind of decisions does sort of deplete our cognitive resources, that we actually get fatigued and we actually have a, 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 an experience of it being effortful and, and, and something that's exhausting, that it can have some deleterious consequences down the line so that we might do worse at some later task. And uh-huh. so there specifically we're kind of looking at over this window of time, if, if people have to make decisions over hours and hours and hours – does the quality of the decision seem to change and so in this case it looked like the decisions was such that the default for most people was to say no which is requests that people were making <laughs> they were less likely to say no um, at early in the day when they had their full resources but as the day went on they were more likely to kind of go with their their default and to say, no, they can't have it. So.
2: so just to go into like we're talking about decision fatigue here, just talking about what the study actually said, it was parole decisions. It was a judge who got several different cases over the course of a day to request to have a prisoner released on parole. And when when you say the, the, the default position was to say no when they were uh, mentally tired, I guess, it was, you know, to say in in the context of the study, they were saying we're we're not going to grant you parole. I mean that's that seems like, you know, from a from a perspective of of uh you know, I I'm I guess I'm wondering whether or not that means that because they're tired that means that they're making this decision or whether or not that's just an expression of what we would do all all things else being equal. Is it, I mean is that fair to say?
1: I think it's very much the latter. The, the other things being equal, certainly the evidence in the case is going to carry the weight more so than probably any of these factors. But given you have an ambiguous case, or given that these other factors are kind of equated in the situation, do you? How do you? How do you? You know, sort of make that call to go kind of go one way or the other. And so, in that kind of situation, what are you more likely to do? You may give the benefit of the doubt, or you may be in a situation of you no. Know, you know, so I think I think where we fall in that. That uh, and, and that decision-making, when things are right at that kind of cusp where it could go either way is when you're going to see this difference, not that it's going to overwhelm all the evidence.
0: Judge DeCopp, we were talking a little bit before the show. You're, I, you don't necessarily buy this. No, I don't
3: buy it. I <laughs> To qualify that, I see the validity of – the study and the idea that if you consistently keep making decision after decision after decision, especially in a stressful situation, at some point in time, are you going to get fatigued or tired and, and fall to a default position? I don't believe that that is going to happen on any kind of a regular basis with judges. However – as I was sitting here thinking I, I I have thought about the fact that, after a day of sitting on the bench all day, if i 've gone home and um, my husband says, "Where do you want to go to dinner?" I have been known to say i 've been making decisions all day. You decide where you want where we 're going to go to dinner um, because i mean if pushed, I would, but um, the the problem with that study, in my opinion, and i 'm not the the researchers who study the the brain or or this process is there are too many other factors that go into a judge's decision as to what you're going to do w- in regards to a particular individual. Um, and if you take that, res- that decision-making responsibly, then whether or not it's before lunch or after lunch or the beginning of the day or the end of the day is not going to be a f- factor and should not be a factor. Um, is it going to is is it going to be stressful and is it it going to take a toll on you? I think it will, but I think one of the things that is probably true with judges and other people in in professions like this is that it probably takes a toll in other areas of your life, not so much when you're doing the actual job. Um, I will say that lately, just very lately in the conferences that uh, judges attend, there has been now um, a couple of sessions that have been offered on the study of judges and stress where there have been studies on police officers and stress and firefighters and stress. But this is the first time people are starting to look at the stress, the judges, the the toll it takes. So, yeah, I I think that there's obviously um, a reason to look at it in a correlation. But that's the study we're talking about in particular. I have a lot of questions about. I thought it was interesting that this study chose to uh, look at judges. When I was reading it, I was
0: thinking about um, emergency room doctors who typically pull very long shifts and are forced with decision after decision after decision. Do you think that this phenomenon of uh, decision fatigue would have, would affect that profession as well?
1: Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think the, the the phenomenon itself, it should be very, very broad in terms of just the nature of the complexity of decisions that anybody makes in their in their given career. So, I, I mean, I think one of the things the authors kind of point out would be, you know, think of somebody who has to repetitively see a number of candidates for interviewing. You know, the thing is, are you going to give set different kind of weight to the people the first time you're doing it when you're kind of fresher as opposed to, you know, I'm seeing candidate X, Y, and Z that's way down the line. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm really not interested in this. So I think with us at, in at universities, one of the things I could see the relevance to is grading. Like if you're just doing a whole stack mm-hmm. of papers and mm-hmm. any, any educator knows that, you know, you kind of need to take breaks and there are things like that because you may just get fatigued. And are you harsher grader than, you know, for the – the 10th paper mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to the first one? Maybe. Yeah. And so is this something that we should be kind of cognizant of and, and to regard but I against? think
2: that's an interesting point, though. I mean, a grade is not the same thing as a decision to deny versus versus grant parole. Uh, that's, a, that's a binary decision, whereas a grade is on a scale. Um, you know, that's, that's one of the things that, that about this study that I don't quite understand is, is that is it fair to equate a favorable decision versus an unfavorable decision to a good or a bad decision, and you know i guess i'm wondering whether or not the i mean that kind of value judgment doesn't seem to be addressed in in this research and, and i i wonder if you could even say that about a, a decision you make when you're tired i mean maybe you're just mm-hmm. making a bottom line decision as opposed to you know i'm going to give this paper a b because well because it seems like a b and i just don't have time to think about it or justify my reason i'm just i'm mentally tired and that's the grade i feel like giving it um is that a bad thing
1: I, I completely agree. I think that what it can speak to is the idea of of what's your sort of status quo bias right? I mean, I think that you kind of fall back on your defaults or these kind of they, – they talk about it as sort of a status quo thing. Like, what would you do when you're not really thinking very carefully? Do you kind of have a default to go one way or the other? And so you know, it may take a lot of energy and real thought to, to sort of push you to go away from those things. And so that if you have your resources or are able to do that, you might incorporate them. Now, whether they're good or bad, I mean, many of our defaults are probably good, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so that doesn't necessarily mean it'll be better. But you can think about situations where – it pushes you to do something you wouldn't normally do, right? Hmm. I mean, so maybe for for many of us, I think, and Peter studies this as like eating behavior, right? I mean, it's easy for us. Our default is... I'm going to just, like, eat another M&M. I'm just going to take a little bit more here and stuff. And so it takes our resources to be able to convince ourselves to hold back, right? I, I should wait until mealtime. I shouldn't snack or whatever. But if our default is to do that, then it probably is a bad thing because we're succumbing to temptation. Is that always what our defaults are? I don't know.
0: Yeah, but is that all it is? Dr. Todd, they, they do make a strong correlation in, the, in this study between um, where, kind of where your glucose level is, actually, and your decision-making capability. Is that something you've studied and are looking at as far as the relationship between uh, just your physical well-being and and your calorie uh, load, if you will, I guess, and your ability to make good decisions?
4: So we haven't studied that specifically, but uh, a number of others have. This has been a very hotly debated topic recently about is – willpower uh, this muscle that can get tired out and that you can uh, re-energize and what is the the mechanism uh, that's going on there. One of the ideas has been that um, this willpower muscle would get re-energized through glucose, through blood sugar. But I think that's been pretty uh, well um, defeated by Rob Kurzban and others who have, have made strong arguments that glucose is not the thing which is controlling uh, how much willpower we have. And actually, Ed has uh, been doing research and, and others showing that it depends what you think is, is your willpower mechanism In terms of when you are going to get depleted. So if you believe that your willpower is a muscle that gets tired when you use it, then that can be what actually happens to you. If you believe that your willpower is a muscle that you have to exercise to get warmed up and then you can apply it better, then that can actually – make you not get uh depleted by making a series of of different decisions.
0: Is this the ego depletion that we talked uh, that mm-hmm. the article refers to? Could you explain what that means exactly?
1: Well, Yeah, it's kind of a vague term in the sense that it it often uses analogy to sort of help us understand it. So the analogy that Peter is referring to is this muscle metaphor that, you know, Mm -hmm. we get fatigued when we use our muscles and we have to actually take a break because otherwise our limbs are shaking and, you know, our muscles are fatigued. And so the idea was that doing different kinds of difficult cognitive exercises, whether it's inhibiting certain kind of thoughts, you don't want to say the wrong thing or a situation like this where, you know, you're trying to, to weigh a lot of different information that's very fatiguing, that's something that takes a lot of effort on our part, and that we tend to believe that we have a very limited capacity to be able to do a lot of these difficult kinds of mental operations. And so if we do them for some period of time, we do experience this kind of mental sense of... I'm tired, I'm fatigued, and so that this has some consequences down the line in terms of people being able to do subsequent tasks after that. They mm-hmm. feel like they need a break. They feel like they're fatigued, and so they're not going to be at their at their uh, full capacity to be able to do something subsequently. And so that's what this research has really shown, is that you see these downstream consequences where people's performance at later stuff just seems to deteriorate because mm-hmm. they, they have done so much self-control and self-regulation in one situation that... I don't have enough. I'm spent. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. that kind yeah. of feeling we have. We
0: call it glazed over.
1: Yeah, you just get gla- absolutely. You, we just
0: get, you know, you just get glazed over right. and it doesn't matter anymore. So do you two doctors, do you, do you advocate for the frequent break? Do you take a break? I mean, really, in your own work, do you have and do you encourage others? Hey, you know, take a break. Let's kind of wipe the slate clean and start fresh.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it definitely does work. The the thing that's been interesting for me is what is a break for people, right? I mean, everybody kind of has their own things of what things constitute a break. And so the the stuff that Peter's referring to is just the fact that it's a very subjective thing as to – when we need a break, how long that break needs to be, and what we think actually replenishes us. For some people, it's food. For Mm -hmm. some people, it's go take a nap. I'm not one. My wife is somebody who can fall asleep, you know, five minutes in the car and take a five-minute nap and feel refreshed. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. So that that one doesn't work for me. But other kind of things, somebody thinks going on the internet's a a relaxing thing. Other people, it's a stressful thing. (laughs) I mean, so it's just interesting how it is what we think does that replenishment for us. But Yeah, it's a common experience.
2: So we have a decision maker in our studio, the Honorable Mary Ellen DeKoff, a judge here in in Monroe County. We also have doctors Peter Todd and Ed Hurt, who uh, are with the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences here at Indiana University. If you have a question for our decision makers or or for the people who study decision makers, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. We have a caller on the line right now with us from Bloomington is Dave, Dave, go ahead.
5: Yes, I, I think I've experienced this uh, depletion that you're talking about a couple of years ago, when uh, the people uh, who, who run the new nutrition program advocated heavily for uh, passage of a tax for retaining members of the school uh, community. And I, I guess my question, uh, more than anything else, is. Um, at what point in time could maybe we ask uh, Bob and Mary Catherine to give us a complete overview of the results of what happened um, over the course of the last two years from the decision that was made then? Um, and I know that that's kind of off topic, but still I think that that willpower resistance uh, was worn down on a number of the community um, in that occasion. Thank you.
2: We do have an education website you can go to. I, I'm not Bob Zaltzberg. I couldn't presume to be, but you could check out stateimpactindiana.org. dot org. There, I, there's my uh, my plug there for for the education reporting that we've been doing. But it it is an interesting point, though. We we live in an age of political advertisements and and uh, and you know very active discussion of of political issues. When, you, when we see these advertisements for political candidates, I mean, we hear so much about the influence of money um, on local elections and things like this. Have you, have you done any research or know of any research where that – like that show how that money can wear people down with a barrage of advertisements, whether it's on TV or radio, lawn signs, things like this? Does that have an effect on how we make decisions when it comes time to walk into a voting booth?
4: I think that, uh, this is definitely one of the situations that Mary Catherine was talking about where people can get glazed over. Uh, but when it comes time to to make the actual voting decisions, And also in in a variety of the other kinds of decisions that we've been talking about, including um, medical doctors making emergency decisions, often that doesn't take very much information. People often resort to the kinds of defaults or heuristics to make decisions quickly and simply in a way that avoids taxing themselves. So I think people – do have mechanisms for dealing with the complexities of of the environments that that we exist in and that we make our decisions in, in ways that we can simplify the choices for ourselves. So I think a lot of these different kinds of depletion effects that we're talking about, they don't necessarily hit us because we do have mechanisms for avoiding them, for making decisions quickly, in ways that aren't going to tax us. That's very different from the kinds of decisions that judges often have to make where their job is to take all the information that they can into account and apply all the rules that, that they know about. When we as lay people, are making our decisions, we often don't have to do that and can make them very simply. Yeah.
0: I know in education, rubrics are are increasingly popular and, and could come to bear on a situation like this. Is that, do you recommend employing that kind of thing when you're faced with decision after decision to keep yourself kind of on track and, and um, for lack of a better phrase, on an even keel?
4: Absolutely. So that's uh – An approach that is being advocated in in lots of different areas, uh, having a checklist. And so that is is being used in – well, it's been used for airline pilots deciding if they are ready to take off. So having a written checklist and having two people go through and, and say, yes, we've done all these things. In medicine, that is increasingly uh, an approach that's being advocated. Just have this checklist. Make sure that you've done all these things, that you've checked all these things. And that helps greatly to reduce the errors that are made in in both of those kinds of decisions. And I think for us, making uh, rubrics in education, it's the same kind of thing. Check off these things, and then that guides your decision.
2: I I want to bring this back into the legal arena for a second for Judge Decoff and ask, maybe this isn't, I mean, this sort of started with talking about judges making decisions. I'm wondering about juries making decisions. I mean, how is it, especially when you have juries, you hear in these big cases where juries will deliberate on a decision for days, hours on end, how do you make sure that they're making a good decision when they're in a room, often in a contentious environment where people might not agree at first? And, you know, how how do you make sure that they're making a good decision. I mean, is there anything that you as a judge or the legal community general in general can do for these people? These are the juries of our peers, and they're making very important decisions.
3: Um, Because once a jury begins to deliberate, um, their deliberations and their um, discussions have to be, um, they're secluded, they remain secluded, they uh, can't be spoken to, um, not even directly by the judge, Um, everything is done either in the courtroom on the record or through a bailiff. Um, But what you can do is make sure that um, you um, ask them periodically about taking breaks, um, making sure that if the, you know if you have smokers, for instance, uh, cigarette smokers in the on the jury, then you periodically so that and the jury has to stay together. So then they would all go outside um, um, because you have. I mean, it's what the I've rules. I never thought about, about that before. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, they, they you, know, you can't just let them wander around on their own. Um, so you, you know you you make sure that they're, um, that that uh, there's adequate um, water, coffee um have them take breaks check on them um but how long that process takes is up to the people in that room they control it they're told they control it um and all you can do is is try to make them as comfortable as you can i mean um if you think back to uh the the beginning of the history of this country with juries um they used to place juries in a room um you could have a day this cold in a built in a room no heat um, no water, no food, no electricity, no lights, and mm-hmm. say, here, make a decision and, you know, let us know. Uh, <laughs> I think the verdicts were really quick in those days. <laughs> um, there's so, some, there's so, some so,
2: merit to that at the yeah, end.
3: <laughs> and and I, so I think, that, I think that, that, you know, that goes to, you know, they probably didn't have enough time to get fatigued because they were freezing to death. But, um, but you know, you, you, you do that. And, and we are aware even during the trial, um, when I'm doing a jury trial, As long as the testimony is allowing, I try never to go more than an hour and a half at a time um, before Mm -hmm. we take a break and get the jury up and out and, and, you know, 10 minutes or so and get them back in. And sometimes even if, you know, for whatever is going on in the room, you have them stand up even and, you know, stretch and sit back down to to be able to have that kind of break Mm -hmm. um, so that they're not just sitting there for hours. Mm -hmm. All right.
0: Well, we're, uh, we've already reached the bottom of the hour when we take a little break. Today we're talking about decision fatigue. Uh, if you'd like to speak with us after the break, we'd love for you to call us. Our number is 855-0811. You can call us toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition and send in your questions that way or send us a, tr- a tweet at Noon Edition. Following the break, we'll also be joined by Jonathan LeVa, Associate Professor of Business from Stanford University. We're looking forward to his contribution to our, co- our conversation today. Uh, you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
6: This is Noon Edition on WFIU.
0: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Mary Catherine Carmichael, along with my co-host for today, Kyle Stokes. Kyle, thanks again for following, um, filling in for fun. Bob Salzberg today. It's been today. interesting. Uh, it's going quickly. You made a good decision to be here today. You must have <laughs> made that decision on a full stomach <laughs> and early on in the day. Uh, again, we're talking about decision fatigue. We make thousands of decisions and choices each day, uh, what to wear, what to eat, where to park, and so on. A study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found judges were more likely to make favorable rulings in similar cases early on in the day or if they took a break to eat a sandwich first. Today we're taking a closer look at that decision making. Uh, We're joined in the studio uh, by three guests and I'm happy to say we're also joined on the phone for the second half of our program by a fourth guest. Allow me to introduce each of them. The Honorable Mary Ellen DeKoff is a judge here in Monroe County, uh, the Circuit Court Division 5. Dr. Ed Hurt, is a professor of Depart- in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences here at Indiana University. And Dr. Peter Todd is also a professor of the Department of Physiological and Brain Sciences here at Indiana University. Joining us now on the phone, we're happy to welcome Jonathan Levav, and I hope I've pronounced your name correctly, sir, Associate Professor of Business at Stanford University. He is one of the co-authors of the Judicial Decision Study that we've been discussing Today and thank you for joining us.
5: It's my pleasure. I apologize, I'm joining you late.
0: That's okay. Better late than never. We're glad you decided to join us the second half. Well, we've been discussing your your study uh, quite quite a bit. Uh, What led you to this uh, field of study?
5: Um, like a lot of things in research, it happened by accident. I I had my co-author Shai Danziger and I have been good friends for a long time. We'd always talked about doing uh, a paper together, but we never came up with an idea that either worked or was good enough. And it turns out I had published a paper about a similar effect to what we report in the in, in the parole paper you've been talking about, but I but, but in the domain of car purchases and car customization, mm.
0: in Germany.
2: And he had
5: read that paper, and about roughly the same time. Uh, our third author, Leora Naeem, walked into his office and wanted to do a PhD, and she sort of described the kind of stuff she does. She, it turns out, is the clerk at the parole board. And she said that she could get the data, you know, she could get data from the parole board. And so, and so then, basically, like, one plus one, the paper on the cars that showed uh, what we call depletion effect um, on, in, in the car arena, um, then became the question became well let 's see if it works also um in this context as well the context of the parole decisions and and that 's how it took off so i never I never set out um, we never set out to show how extraneous factors affect legal decisions, but we ended up showing that in the end
2: yeah. You wrote in your paper, uh, Mr. Lavov, that that, uh, although our data do not allow us to test directly whether justice is what the judge had for breakfast, they do suggest that judicial decisions can be influenced by whether the judge took a break to to eat. Um, I I thought that was an interesting turn of phrase. It it seems to nicely encapsulate the paper. As we've sort of been talking about, that's not necessarily saying that if the judge is hungry, they're likely to rule one way or another on any specific case, but that sort of changes – where their status quo lies. Am I right?
5: Yeah, it's absolutely it's absolutely not the case. There's a few Well, for one, we don't know is is it the break that's having the effect or is it a meal that's having the effect. So I don't know if the issue is that they're hungry or that they're tired, um, or both. Um we just we just don't have those data and we don't have any hope of running an experiment like that, um, ever. So so that's gonna be I mean that's gonna at least at least in an applied setting like this. So that's that's gonna remain a mystery um, mm. but yeah i mean you're 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 absolutely right the the the, the breakfast part by the way was just a response to the people that you know legal formalists criticize legal realists that so they say that legal realists say that justice is what the judge had for breakfast, so that was <laughs> we were basic we were basically quipping there
0: yeah um well, that, would, that uh, does...
5: but it, it definitely isn't the intent to say, oh yeah if you know if you're hungry then certain things happen. What we do intend to say, however, is, as you point out, that as, you know, and this is our interpretation, right, from the evidence that we haven't measured this directly. It's our interpretation of what's going on, that as people get tired from making decisions, they look to simplify them. And so whatever the status quo is, in this case, the status quo was to keep the prisoner incarcerated, that's the outcome that's most likely to obtain. Mm. But that has nothing to do with food, right? It's not because they're hungry, so they become less... Less, um, less lenient. If the status quo were something else, we would likely see something else. Of course, the press, when they quoted it, they said, you know, you, know, you don't want to go see a judge when you're hungry because it's <laughs> going to be less lenient.
0: Dr. Doctor Judge Dekoff, would you like to respond to this? We, we do have uh, Judge Mary Ellen in the set in the studio with us today.
3: Well, with right. all due respect um, to your study, um, yeah. first of all, I don't equate with what I do with buying a car. And second of all, it depends upon what your definition of favorable is. If if your definition of favorable is an outcome for the person asking the parole board, then that study is going to – your study is geared towards how many yeses, how many noes. To me, what is favorable when you're talking about judicial or legal decisions has a multitude of factors and favorable to – the person asking doesn't necessarily mean it's not favorable to the system or not favorable to the victims or not favorable to other people who are involved in this. To me, it's too multifaceted to be able to say that you had this many yeses at this time, you you don't have this many yeses after this time. And so therefore, the the judge is getting fatigued or there's decision making fatigue. Again, it comes down to, for me, what's your definition of favorable? If it's simply this, how many yeses the, the judge or the panel granted to a, to a parolee or not, um, I'm sorry, but I don't, I don't necessarily agree that that factor is because the d- judge is getting tired. It could be a multitude of other factors.
5: No, no, no. We, we, we actually don't say that at all. So first of all, a couple things. One is, you know, we are very careful to use the word status quo or default. Um, and when we mention favorable, we say decisions that are favorable to the prisoner. But I don't think the fact that – but, 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 but I agree with you that, um, that uh, you know, favorable is multifaceted and, you know, are judges making good or bad decisions is, 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 is a totally separate question, one that we don't test. What we do test and what we do show very clearly, and that's what the yes-no stuff is, 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 is important for and is appropriate, is that all we say is that there is a status quo, which is to remain incarcerated. And then there's a situation that requires some kind of change, which is to release the prisoner. And all we're showing is that, is that there's, there's a pattern to those yeses and nos. And we're saying that that pattern is a likely, you know, it seems to be driven by the number of decisions that that the judge made. We are actually working now. The, the, the real billion-dollar question, not even the million-dollar question, is are the decisions right in the beginning of the sequence or at the end of the sequence? That's when I can actually determine favorability and all its facets. As you describe, and what we have now is a new data set where we actually have the same kind of setup, but we also have information on whether or not the prisoners later... Committed a subsequent crime, so we also have recidivism rates, and what that's going to allow us to do is it's going to allow us to be able to characterize which which decisions are good versus bad in an absolute sense, right? Because the whole point of the judicial system, uh, or, or, or the, the you know the whole point of putting a criminal in a penitentiary is so that they won't you know to punish them for the past and to deter them for the future, and so that we'll be able to make some kind of judgment on deterrence. The last point I'd like to make is 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 uh, so no, I understand your indignation about having your, your, your job compared to buying a car. Um, one is that that's, that's, not what it, that's not at all what I meant, and, and it's not at all what we write, but it is similar in the following respects, and I think one of the things that the paper does say is that judges are people too, um, and that, and that just, like, just like you're subject to all kinds of psychological processes and biases in your day-to-day life and other domains, you're also subject to those biases in the courtroom. And, and, that's, and that's, part of the, that's, that's part of the whole point of this school of thought of, of, of legal realism. Um, and, you know, that goes all the way back to Oliver Wendell Holmes. Um, so, so, so in some ways, yeah, making, you know, making a judgment in the courtroom from, in an abstract psychological way is the same as purchasing a car. For the people buying the car in our studies, they're buying $50,000 cars. Those are huge decisions at that moment in time in that context. And 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 for you in the courtroom, the decision you're making is a huge decision. Now obviously if I buy the wrong car, it only affects me. Whereas if you if you release the wrong criminal, it affects all of us. Of course from a social perspective, the cost of a mistake in the legal system is much larger than the cost of the mistake of my buying, you know, a car with uh, two cup holders or three cup holders um, but psychologically in terms of what's going on in your head, there's no reason to think that those things are different.
0: All right, Judge Dikov, I've got to let you respond to
3: that. (laughs) 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 Once again, you are correct in in the fact that judges are human beings. The the difference is here is that whether I prefer a car with two or three cup holders is something that obviously is very personal to me and, and only affects me what the biases and prejudices that i that i may or may not have in regards to individuals situations or issues are totally irrelevant and have no place in the court system or the or the legal system my job is to be aware i have those biases and my job is to is to make sure that those biases do not affect any decision that i'm making once a judge doesn't do that or is incapable of doing that then we're we're talking in my opinion beyond any kind of Fatigue or decision making. Anything the factors that go into a decision that I make on a daily basis with each case that I decide is based purely on the factors involved in that: the individual, the criminal history, the crime, the victims, the system, um, etc. The other the other problem, truthfully, that I have with your study is the status quo. If you're going to go from an assumption that the status quo is that prisoners stay in prison i 'm sorry i that to make that simplified of an assumption that that then you 're going to revert to the status quo, which is the prisoner stays in prison, to me is overly simplified, and i don't know enough about the the system in israel i don't know enough about their court system i don 't know enough about how those decisions are made to begin with i do i I do know that here it is not that simple it is not that. Uh, it's much more complex. It's much more complicated. So, yeah, but, yeah but, to me, it's uh, it's still not me, like buying me. a car.
5: So, so, so I'm not being clear about what I mean by status quo. You have a prisoner that comes up for parole. Parole is a choice made by the judge, and it's a right of the prisoner to be considered for parole at two-thirds of their sentence by law in the state of Israel, and I'm, if I'm not mistaken, in the U.S. as well. And for what it's worth, the U.S legal system is based on the British system and so is the Israeli system. So, um, you know, in in terms of law, there's more similarities and differences um between what happens in Israel versus here. From let's 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 look at what, what, what the situation is. By right? at the end of two thirds of my sentence, I as a prisoner have a right to request parole. So now so now there can be two outcomes, broadly speaking. One outcome is the judge says I'm going to release you on parole. So, you know, there's certain conditions that I, and you have to meet them, right? So that, that means a change from a situation where, that I'm in, which is being in prison. So when I say the status quo remains, it means that the situation that the prisoner is in, i.e. being in prison, continues. And about that, I don't think that there's complicated versus not complicated. You're either in prison or you're out of prison. When you're a prisoner, your default existing situation is um being in prison and when you're out of prison your default existing status quo is being free and the judge can decide to reverse that situation that you're in and when the judge reverses that situation that you're in that means they've moved you away from what the status quo is for you okay well so in, get... oh. so in that sense, so in that sense, it's a hundred percent the status quo it's 100% assessable, and I understand what you mean about the law and you shouldn't be biased and all those kind of things, but there there are decades of research showing that, that legal decisions are biased, and I think that if legal decisions weren't biased, the legal decisions would be made by robots, and I don't think judges are robots. And I think one of the reasons, for instance, you have arguments between Republicans and Democrats in confirmation hearings about 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 judges is because people understand that political values actually matter to the way judges make decisions and and you know our study even though i think upsets legal formalists all it says is something that we already knew which is that judges are people and people are biased and there's no reason to think that when you walk in the courtroom you're not going to be biased
0: Okay. Well, Judge Dicop feels, I think, if I'm, if I can paraphrase this, that the gravity of the situation and the rules that she must legally, that she is legally bound to follow, override any potential or possible decision fatigue uh, that could potentially be experienced. I'd like to get a reaction from our doctors in the in the studio with us. Uh, Doctor Todd, are you game to
4: start? Sure. I actually have a question that follows up on uh, Jonathan's point about uh, our social attitudes. Uh, Hi, Jonathan. Hey, how are you, Peter? Good to talk to you
5: again.
4: Likewise. Uh, I wanted to find out your thoughts on uh, new work, if you've seen it, by Michael Peterson showing that uh, hunger increases support for social welfare. So they did uh, the same kind of analysis that that you guys did of looking at uh, the uh, responses of people in Denmark to social welfare questions to how much they support that political uh, ideology of social welfare when they took the survey before lunch or after lunch, and they found this difference, yes, in terms of hunger. So, uh, So they had some measures of hunger, and also they had... Some other people, or they just knew what time they took it, like uh, for your judges' data. And yeah. so I wondered if you thought this could give more uh, evidence for the role of hunger and that aspect of depletion.
2: Just to just before you, we get your reaction when you talk about social welfare. You're saying talk about government policies to support people who are hungry or needy, things like exactly. things like that. Exactly. Uh, yeah, your your reactions, Mr. Lavav. Uh, so that that's.
5: Uh Fascinating study that I wasn't aware of at all, um, and the question is whether or not it's related to what to what we're doing. I think I think the difference between that study and the study that that that, that we report is in our study, you have a situation of making a lot of decisions um, in a row where you have to wait a lot of information, all these illegal details on the spot and you have to a determination on the spot. Right. I think that, that's, that that lends itself to different, I mean, that's, that's a different kind of context than the context that you're, the, the, this Peterson study, or what I understand the Peterson study to be, which mm-hmm. is more of a, it's, it's a little bit closer to kind of priming study. Now, you know, I, have to, I go back to the comment I said earlier. I don't know whether the issue here is hunger or the issue is taking a break. Mm. Um, and so, as long as I don't know that, I you know, I, I can't give a solid response to the question. But I can say the following: I do have a, uh, some experiments with with um, uh, psychologist named Nicole Mead, who's out at Erasmus in Rotterdam, where we have people do a task that's cognitively depleting. Though obviously not nearly as involved as buying a fifty thousand dollars car, or 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 making a legal decision, and then we either have them. You know they either have a self control task that follows it or 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 then then they either take a break at their desk and then they have some kind of task that that it's intended to measure their ability to to engage in self control versus they switch rooms during the break and they engage in that same task and we find that we don 't have depletion effects when people switch rooms <laughs> that suggests that maybe uh, Hunger isn't an issue. There's something about sort of the physical bracketing of the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so the sort of long and the short answer is I'm not sure, without actually running the experiments, um, and probably actually taking physiolog- physiological measures and correlating those physiological measures with, uh, with the decision outcomes, it's hard, it's hard to comment what the Peterson study really means for our context.
2: I have a I have a quick question for you. I know we we have just a few minutes left with you here, Professor Lavav, but we were talking here in the studio about uh, about other ways that we that we might apply some of the things that we learned with your study. And the question that I'm still left with is whether or not – we were sort of talking about this before – is whether a favorable versus unfavorable decision in a legal context is the same thing as making a good decision versus a bad decision. I, I wonder w- whether or not we were to take some of the same conditions of your experiment and apply them to a professor grading papers as we were sort of discussing with our guests here earlier. Uh. How would, that, how, do you, how would you anticipate that changing uh, the outcomes of, of the survey? And wouldn't that be a better way to decide, to get at sort of are we, are we making better decisions or, or worse decisions when we're, when we're mentally fatigued?
5: So when you think about better and worse decisions, you have to decide what is my criterion for good versus bad. Mm-hmm. In the legal case, it's very clear. My, a good decision is a decision that the guy got punished and then he never commits a crime again. And that's, why, and that's why we're now doing this recidivism study. In the grading case, it's not obvious to me what. Good I, I think that seems that I have to stop is.
2: you there. That seems really oversimplified. That that seems like a really oversimplified way to look at a legal decision. I, I mean, you know, like that seems, you know, it, it's not clear whether or not letting a guy f- go versus stay, and it's it doesn't seem like there's a there's a normative statement you can say generally about a legal decision in that no. context. No,
5: no, no, no. You need to make a decision. I mean, you need to. I mean, I mean. When when we say a good or bad decision, we have to decide what are the criteria by which we're going to consider a decision to be good or bad. I suggest one criteria, but obviously there can be lots of other criteria. With grading, unlike with these legal decisions, it's less obvious to me what the good or bad decision would be, and so and so that's the difference. I will say though that after our study came out, a friend of mine who was a professor at Yale sends me an email, and the subject line said "Damn you." <laughs> and then and, and you and I open up I open up the email. What does the email have? It has um a curve of how he graded assignments um his the final exam it's actually with him and a team of tas and and basically they were more lenient lenient in the sense that they gave higher grades initially and then that sort of went progressively down and then they took a break and then it went up and so it had the same kind of pattern now it had the same kind of pattern but i think for totally different reasons um uh and 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 so that's that's just kind of an anecdote related to grading i think I think a better i think uh, a probably a more appropriate context to test this stuff would be, for instance, in medical decisions, um, which is what we're thinking about doing now uh, for uh, situations like funding decisions like committees that fund that decide to fund grants versus not, something where you can sort of have some kind of objective sense of what a good versus a bad decision is um, mm versus versus grading something that's that's uh, subjective.
0: Jonathan Levav, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Mr. Levav is an associate professor of business at Stanford University. I know that you have somewhere else you need to get, uh, you need um, to be. So- um,
5: um, um, I just arrived at the airport and I'm about to take off. So thank no. you so much. For your time. <laughs> I, really, I really appreciate your
0: patience. Well, thank you so much for fitting us into your busy day. We sure appreciate it.
5: No problem. See you guys later. Thank you.
0: Thank you. We only have a few minutes left in the show. If you want to call quickly uh, or go ahead and give us a tweet or an email, you can do that, 855-0811. If you want to call us toll free, 877-285-9348 or wfiu.org slash noon edition. Before we um, wrap up today, Dr. Todd and I are going to go back to my online shopping cart that I abandoned before coming in today. So why did I do that?
4: So there has been recent research suggesting that people get overwhelmed by having too much choice. Uh, But there was earlier research saying people want more choice, and that's why companies end up providing more choice. Why can't it be both?
0: I want more choice, but then when I have it, I'm overwhelmed.
4: (laughs) So that also can certainly be the case. That's right. Uh, We actually tried to uh, get those too much choice effects and to be able to study them and couldn't find those in in 10 experiments that Benjamin Scheibahanna and I ran. And uh, then we went back and looked at 50 different studies that had been published on this and found that there were just as many studies that showed that uh, people avoid situations where they have too many things to choose from or they're less satisfied with the choices that they make in those cases as there were experiments showing that actually people made good decisions, were, were happy to make decisions when they had uh, a lot of things to choose from. Part of it comes down to if you know what you're looking for, then having more choice is not going to get in your way. It's not going to make you feel depleted. Um, but we're still trying to figure out what are the exact situations that can lead people to feel overwhelmed or to feel energized by wow look at all this great stuff now I'll really be able to find the, the thing that I want or the thing that I want to to buy somebody for the holidays
0: you know I would think that the retailers retailers would be keenly interested in this kind of research
4: absolutely so and still they are defaulting on the side of, of having lots of choice and and if you make the choices uh of the right sort, you can lead people to buy, you know, the, the medium-priced things um, more than the cheap-priced things. So often having more choice can lead people to spend more money on on intermediate uh, options.
0: All right. Very interesting. Um, we've only got about a minute left. Any last thoughts? Uh, Dr. Hurt, I'll give you a chance.
1: No, I, I mean, I think this has been a really interesting discussion. I think one of the things that I would take from Dr. Lavav's, um analysis, though, is that the challenge that we have in so many decisions of Acknowledging our biases and the Mm -hmm. the struggles that we often have to try to do that. And that in many of our studies that we do with depletion, one of the situations that you set up are ones where people are really cognizant of potential biases that could creep in and the effort it takes to try to do that. And that that can create the fatigue itself. I mean, unlike just decisions, but just the idea of I need to be aware of this and I want to make the right decision. So therefore, I'm aware that this could potentially bias me and I want to prevent that.
0: All right. On that note, I've got to go and finish my online shopping. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. Today we talked about decision fatigue. Joining me in the studio was my co-host of the day, Kyle Stokes. Thank you for filling in for Bob Salzberg. We send our best out to Bob Salzberg. Also joining us as my guests today were Jonathan Lavov from Stanford University. He's an associate professor of business there. Dr. Peter Todd, professor, Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences here at Indiana University. Also from our hometown, Indiana University, Dr. Ed Hurt, a Professor, Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences, and finally, the Honorable Mary Ellen DeKoff, Judge, Monroe County Circuit Court Division 5. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy days uh, to join us here as we talked about decision fatigue. Please join us next week on Noon Edition. I'm Mary Catherine Carmichael. Thanks for listening.